Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed Indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Indeed. Where's my pen? Oh, there it is. You all right? What's going on? Well, two things. Firstly, welcome back. Oh yeah, I'm sorry about last week. Are you? You're not fully recovered, I'm are really, you? I'm really not. No, <laughs> you'd not be at home. Well, <clears throat> I just thought I was committed to the cause. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. It's it was, you know it's just one of those seasonal lurkies, as I think people can hear. That used to be a thing in Manchester in the 1980s. Was if you turned up to man the barricades in a state of unwellness, everyone thought you were particularly comradely. And I remember once really? somebody somebody turning up, <laughs> somebody turning up to start, we were smashing something or other. Can't remember what it was. The system. Yeah, so the system, but in it's all. And somebody turned up. And they were like coughing and hacking and, you know, being as ill as a dog. And somebody said, what a sterling comrade. And that really stuck really? with me. Yes. Yeah, well, I didn't really. <laughs> so you're a sterling comrade. I didn't. Thank I'm you not for your persisting service. for those reasons, but I just thought, you know, uh, it was, you know, it's not nice to, to lose a show. So I just, I mean, I know the show happened, but obviously the show happened. That was you? Without me. What? what that noise, me? whatever that phone noise was. Wasn't I, me. I didn't hear a noise. Did anyone hear a yeah. noise? Is Mark noise. hearing things? I, I probably am hearing things, which can I just say is more than you are. Because before we recorded yes. this show, we were in the room having a conversation, you, me, Simon Paul. Yes. And I told, I said to Simon Paul, oh, it's like that time when that thing happened with la 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 And then you literally went, it's like that time when that thing yeah. happened with la 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 It's like, I l- literally I'm just, Ill. I literally, nothing to do with being ill. It is everything to do with being ill. It means that in the same Does way Does that as, work at home? In the same way as you you admired your comrade for turning up whilst being sick, uh, you should also appreciate me for turning up whilst being sick. But you literally were not registering that I had just said exactly the same thing. I can't that you listen said. to everything that you say. No, precisely. And then I said, "It's like that." You know, that's a funny way to start a conversation. And you didn't even remember that joke, which is your joke. No, I, well, it's not my joke. I mean, I just do what I'm told, basically. Anyway, welcome back. Nice to have you back. Thank you very, <laughs> thank you very much. I mean, what happened? What do you mean? When I wasn't here. Well, I had to end up doing it with Robbie. We we couldn't find another presenter. 
there was nobody to fill your your boots. Ample boots, size seven. So, so what we did was we got in Robbie and we had two critics. It was kind of interesting because, you know, the way that this works is you present and I critique and then we sort of... Yes. Talk, but it was like Robbie critiqued and I critiqued and we sort of... it was. Did you fisticuff? No, he was... I mean, Robbie's incredibly civilised, but it was, it was completely different because at the beginning of the show, for example, he started the show and I said, you have to say, you know, welcome. And he went, oh, thank you. I went, no, no, you have to say you're in the presenter chair. That's true. Well, look, you know, I'll try and make it to the end of the pod, basically, thank you. if that's okay. Yes. What are you going to be doing, by the way? I'm going to be reviewing films. Do you want to know what? Uh, what films are you going to be doing? Epic Tales, the animation, Magic Mike's Last Dance, which is the new Magic Mike film, obviously, Women Talking, which is the Sarah Polly movie, and Blue Jean, and there is a reissue of Titanic. Uh, also, uh, super serving uh, for our Extra Takes uh, Brigade. At least, it always says 90 minutes of this nonsense, but I'm... You'll never, never last that long. i make that long. <laughs> um, lots of reviews, uh, more reviews, double the nonsense, pretentious moi... Currently, it's the People 9 versus Mark Kermode. Why does last week not count? Because Ro- it was Robbie. They did it yes. on Robbie last week. He oh. did, didn't do it to me. They did it on him and he got it. Oh. it but it was kind of cheating. It was Gaspar Noé's love. There are not many films in which you'd use the kind of phrases that you use to review Gaspar Noé's love. What words would you use? Well, it was the thing about, you know, Mr. Happy making appearances. And, you know, it, oh, was, okay. it was fairly straightforward. And what are we doing on Take It or Leave It? Doing Queen's Gambit. Guess how much of it I've seen. You've seen all of it? I've seen all of it. I've seen all of it. Oh, great. We've both seen all of it. That'll be fun. By the way, on next week's Shrink the Box, you can enjoy ad-free. Uh, on the take, we learn why Beth Harmon feels compelled to clean up after parties, is highly controlled at the chessboard and thoroughly chaotic away from it. These are the insights you can expect. Love a bit of channel synergy. You can support us via Apple Podcasts or head to extratakes.com. Uh, even better, as the Vanguard will get take two on a Friday. So take one and take two arriving at the same time. Well. Wow. And an ad-free version of Shrink the Box with good old Ben Bailey-Smith uh, on a Tuesday. If you are already a Vanguardista, as ever, we salute we you. We do indeed uh, salute you. Correspondence at kermadamayo.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Andrew Crome, Senior Lecturer in History at Manchester Metropolitan University. Manchester Crome, as in C-H-R-O-M-E. C-R-O-M-E, okay, so without, without the H, but that's still a fantastic it's a fan, name. That's, like, that's the name of a superhero. It makes you sound as, you know, there are other lecturers in history, but if you're called Chrome, Chrome. it's like you're the upgraded. <laughs> that's right, yes. It's like, definitely. Until Dr. Platinum comes along. Andrew says, <laughs> I was interested to hear your discussion of the definition of apocalypse and post-apocalypse yes, last week. this reared its ugly head. Yeah, well, we, we did that ages ago. Yes, I and then think. somebody wrote in and complained last week and said, stop saying that uh, you can't have post-apocalyptic, which I only started saying because somebody wrote in and said, stop saying post-apocalyptic, because what they said was that actually in its original world, apocalypse just means reveal. Okay, all right. Anyway, it's one of the topics I research, says Dr. Chrome. That is a Marvel character. Definitely. To be pl- who's going to... Hugh Jackman could come back, I think, and play Dr. Chrome. Hugh Jackman hopefully on the show um, fairly soon. Oh, great. Anyway. Uh, anyway, you'll be stunned to learn that there is no consensus between academics on what constitutes apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic when speaking about popular culture and whether the latter term is even applicable at all. As you discussed last week, apocalypse comes from the Greek meaning an unveiling or revelation. There we are. 
Some, therefore, would say a film like The Incredible Shrinking Man and its revelation of the nature of humanity's place in the universe in the protagonist's closing monologue would qualify as apocalyptic. apocalyptic. It's all very, very precise. Anyway, it's a long academic email. You know that that's Andrew. how The Incredible Shrinking Man finishes? Is that right? So he gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and he escapes from the cat and he escapes from the mouse and he escapes from the spider and all the rest of it. And then it ends that he walks out, he looks up at the stars, and he realises that he's still part of God's creation, the end. So it's slightly disappointing. Ending. It is. It's like, that's, it's like the end of the birds when they just drive out and the birds sit on the fence. Anyway, Lord Chrome concludes, however you want to define apocalypse, there's no technically correct way. Somewhere there'll be a film or religion scholar who'll tell you you're wrong. Okay, very So good. in other words... Whatever we do. We haven't really moved on. But what no. a delight, says Lord Chrome, to hear Lord Mark Chrome, no. mentioning two of the most interesting of these apocalyptic films last week in The Rapture and Southland Tales, although I may be in a minority of one with my appreciation of the latter. Okay. By the way... Mark may well be familiar with the literary critic Frank Hermode, who wrote the classic Sense of an Ending on Apocalypse in Fiction. On several occasions, I found myself erroneously attributing his findings to Mark before usually correcting my Kermodes. That's very good. But no relation. No, although I, I believe that Frank Kermode's son was called, is called, I believe that Frank Kermode has a relative called Mark, who isn't me, but I have been mistaken for that person. Correspondence at KermanMo.com. Uh, Professor Claire Grierson, uh, Simon and Mark, resident, Tossel Flats, 1987 to 1988. That was your... My Warwick University haunt. Yes. I didn't particularly enjoy my time. <laughs> we, we've heard, but well done for moving on. Thank you, yes. Uh, and also Molecular Biologist's Pew, which I imagine is to the rear of the church, says Claire. So fewer people notice when we drift off, hallucinating <laughs> about biological machinery. <laughs> Listeners since the 1980s to you both initially separately and later together. First time emailer. <clears throat> so she's been around a long time. Um, three weeks ago, after a short illness, my husband and partner of almost 26 years, he's called Mark II, died. Mark had a serious heart condition, but loved life and lived it to the full. And we have two wonderful young adult children. One of the things I never managed to convert Mark to was your shows or podcasts, but I wanted to write and tell you that without you, we wouldn't have had some of our most precious times together, and I'm writing to say thank you. I've just realised that one of the last things Mark and I watched together was a bunch of amateurs. There oh, is yeah. absolutely no way that either of us would have ever seen this funny, beautiful and poignant film if I hadn't heard your heartfelt recommendations. For many years, Mark had limited energy because of his heart, so he had to be careful watching anything substantial, as this could leave him very tired. If we watched something too intense, it might even put him in hospital. It really helped to have your insights and reassurance that films would be suitable and worth it. Just as a, a pause point, that's really fascinating, mm -hmm. yeah. just to think that actually it's worth talking about the intensity or the content of a movie just so that people can go and see it and be fully informed. Yeah, absolutely. A bunch of amateurs took us on a great journey together on our sofa. We laughed, we cried, we held hands. We recognised the love and care between people making the best that they could from what life had given them. Rich humanity was so gently conveyed, we were both deeply moved and very grateful to have seen it. Little did we know that within weeks, Mark's health would suddenly take a turn for the worse, that he would be in palliative care in our home, that I would be nursing him, that he would be making his own peaceful exit, surrounded by me and our children. Thank you both so much for many life-affirming film-watching experiences that Mark and I had over almost 26 years together. 
Deep feelings we were able to share watching amazing films like this together because of the re your recommendations. Whether you read this out or not, I hope you and your team know how much your show matters and how much our lives, especially those of us with relatively little time or energy, are enriched by having you as our guides helping us to find golden nuggets in a sea of films and more recently television. Thank you. Uh, from Professor uh, Claire Grierson, who signs off. Vanguard Easter, BSc, ONS, micro Microbiology and Microbial Technology, 1988, University of Warwick. PhD, Plant Molecular Biology, 1993, Cantab, which is Cambridge. Oh, right, obviously. okay. Uh, Claire, thank you very much. And well, very sorry to hear about... Um, uh, your sad news and Mark's passing, but very happy, of course, to carry on doing what we're doing. Also, I should say that, uh, to the best of my knowledge, the the, the people who made um, a bunch of amateurs do listen to the show, and they will be thrilled to have heard that because, um, you know, I met some of them. They were they were really really lovely people, and uh, but we'll also pass that email on to them. So thank you very much. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, correspondence at kerbinamayo dot com. So um, whole bunch of things out this week. What should we be going to see? Well, that's a kind of leading question, isn't okay, it? Okay, I'll, I'll, re I'll, re I'll rephrase that. There's a bunch of things out this week. Tell us about one of them. Okay, so um, uh, Epic Tales. Epic Tales is uh, is an animated film. Um, did you ever wake up and think, you know what I really need in my life is Tom and Jerry meets Jason and the Argonauts? Yes, actually, just this morning. Just I this morning. Well, well, you're in luck. Excellent. Because due to the miracle of redubbing a French animation into English, you now have... Uh, epic tales, or uh, as it was called in at least one territory, Argonuts. I quite like that. Thank you. Um, ancient Greece, a uh, port town guarded by the Golden Fleece, makes everything live in harmony, including cats and dogs, which always makes me think of, you know, cats and dogs living together. Ghostbusters. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Patty is a mouse who dreams of winning the lottery and travelling the world. Every evening she goes to the port to hear old Jason from Jason and the Argonauts tell tall tales of his adventures, although he can't remember anything anymore. He has a cat friend called Sam who is anxious about Patty's dreams. And when Patty does win the lottery, Sam hides the ticket. Bad Sam. But then the god Poseidon gets angry that the Greeks have made a statue glorifying his vain brother Zeus. Got it? Yeah. Yes, I'm intrigued. Here's a clip. I do. Me. Zeus. <laughs> it's awesome. I think it's the most beautiful ever made for me. Huh? What do you think? Oh, just look at that. Look how it glows in pure gold. It's so shiny. There are diamonds. And the attention to anatomic detail. So true to the original. <laughs> Lots of men wearing towels. Mm. Well, it's, you know, Greek god stuff. So anyway... Uh, Sidon then threatens to destroy the town unless they build an equally vast statue of him. Then Patty goes off with a skeleton crew, a skeleton crew uh -huh. on the Argo to go get the magical trident from a remote island encountering en route Hydra and giant robots and stuff. So here's the thing. So the animation is fine. Um, the English voice dub is fairly dire. The music goes from being inane to being actively irritating. I grew up on Ray Harryhausen, and I can't figure out why on earth anybody would want to revisit this sort of stuff with an animated mouse. The, there was one bit in it when the skeleton crew were doing their stuff, and it reminded me of how much I enjoyed pirates in an adventure with scientists. Do you remember that? I the arm animation, that. Do, yeah. which was really good fun. It, this is just, I mean, I don't know. It's... It's the vacuum theory again, isn't it? If there's nothing else and you want to take, you know, a young kid to go and see something, it's on. I think that's the very best I can say about Epic Tales. It's on.
Right. I once had a, a, a holiday in America, just north of Boston uh, somewhere, and we found ourselves on a beach and lots of men in towels were there, exactly like they were in that animation. Were they Greek gods? Well, they thought they were, but they... <laughs> okay, fine. And one, one guy in a towel, which is quite a small towel, okay. which only kind of went halfway round, uh, wanted to know if I wanted an ice cream. And I, <laughs> I told him I didn't like it. I, I didn't Mr. Whippy. Certainly Mr. Happy. <laughs> anyway. I can't believe... Do you know how long that joke is? Do you, know how, do you know where the joke about Mr. Happy comes from? Uh, well, I mean, I, I remember it's, I mean, it's back to Five Live Days. Yeah. So. Colour of Night, the Bruce Willis film, was the origin of Mr. Happy. Is that right? That was how, that's how old that joke is. is. You spoiled the Mr. Men books for <laughs> generations. Yeah, I know, I did. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Do you think you'll be rushing to see Epic Tales? I think if it was on in front of me, I would sort of turn away. You should say Epic Tales, T-A-I-L-S. Oh, I've it spelt differently. But yeah. Tails, the right. mouse. It doesn't really improve very much. It really doesn't. Uh, okay, well, hopefully there'll be some more interesting stuff uh, on the way. There will be. Ads in just a moment, unless, of course, you're in the Vanguard, in which case we'll be back before you can say Peter Laurie. Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed. Indeed.com slash Mayo. That's Indeed.com slash Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. This episode is brought to you by the good folks at NordVPN. Mark, would you say that AI has been one of the hot topics of the last 12 months or I so? I would indeed yes. say that, Simon. We've had uh, writers and actors striking over the potential misuses of AI. We've had many films exploring the topic, including uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 and The Creator, among others. We have, and although technological advancements bring with them exciting things, they also open the door to cybercrime. Yes, and with all these technological improvements, cybercrime will become more accessible to the average criminal and will become more frequent. And I've said it once, and I'll say it again, this is why NordVPN is so important. With one click on the NordVPN app, you are protected, meaning that you don't have to be tech savvy. Their threat protection feature shields your devices from viruses, malicious malware, and phishing sites. Also, one NordVPN account can be used on up to six devices. Plus, you can get access to streaming services in other regions, all for the price of a cup of coffee per month. To get the best available discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com take. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. And you'll help support our podcast. The link is in the podcast episode description box. 
This episode is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover, such as... Well, such as High and Low, John Galliano, which is the thought-provoking new documentary from Oscar winner Kevin MacDonald, charting the rise and fall of the fashion designer John Galliano. It's, uh, it traces Galliano's working and private life through the decades, candidly investigating his struggles with addiction and the industry pressure he faced along the way. It features conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, uh, Anna Wintour, and many, many more. And it is showing in UK cinemas from March the 8th. Or you could explore the Women's Cinematographers Film Group, streaming on movie in the UK from March the 8th, as women have found more equal footing in the film industries, directors, producers and screenwriters, cinematography remains a stubborn final frontier. Around International Women's Day, MUBI are spotlighting the artistic and technical work of women working behind the camera, including... Including films such as Annette from 2021, Benedetta from the same year, and more recently, Passages, all streaming in the UK from March the 8th. You can try MUBI free for 30 days at MUBI.com slash Kermit and Mayo. That's MUBI.com slash Kermit and Mayo for a whole month of great cinema for free. And we're back. Here we go with the box office top 10 at 26, EO. Which is the Yerchi Skolomowski film about a donkey. So EO is kind of, is it onomatopoeic? Is it when yes, it, it is, isn't it? Yeah. So he's, the donkey is named EO. And this is inspired by a Bresson film from the 60s, but it's very much its own beast, no pun intended. I really liked it. The story is a donkey who is working in a circus. The circus gets closed down because they don't want animals working in circuses anymore. Goes off on a series of encounters with humans, some of whom are kind, some of whom are cruel, some of whom are crazy. And it's really about, you know, a, a donkey's eye view of humanity, but it's profound and touching and moving. It's got an absolutely brilliant score by Pavel Mikitin, Mikitin, pardon me. And uh, I I really like it. Yerchi Skolomowski has got an incredible career, and there's a BFI retrospective of his entire career, including the weirdy British horror film The Shout, uh, happening at the BFI quite soon, so do check that out. Um Jira Fingo on our YouTube channel uh, about EO. Yes. There's a great shot in this film. The donkey is being taken away in a trailer as it's being transported. Yeah. We see the donkey's perspective inside the moving trailer, a small cramped trailer taking him or her to some eventual destination. We notice some daylight entering the trailer via a tiny window to the side of the dog yes. from the side of the donkey. From this same window. We then see a herd of horses galloping into frame. Not a human in sight. Yes, it's a juxtaposition, beautiful in its simplicity, but you owe it to yourself to see this scene and embrace its beauty. It's why cinema was created. It's, it's also, <clears throat> it kind of echoes a scene uh, which I think is later, which is of um, EO in a barn in which there is a sort of a ray of light that comes in, kind of semi-heavenly light, because whenever you have a donkey in a barn, it, it, you immediately think the little donkey of Christian iconography. And the on incidentally is much more heavily religiously allegorical this is actually a largely secular film but though there is that that mirroring of those two shots uh, number 20 Saint-Omer which is a really fascinating film by Alice Diop um, it's essentially a courtroom drama in which a young woman is accused of having uh, killed her child and she kind of argues that she did, but she's not guilty because she's not responsible. And this is being watched by a journalist who is writing on the subject of Medea, but who is herself pregnant. And it's, it is one of those examples of a film in which very little happens 
and yet a huge amount happens. And it's uh, Robbie and I were very much in agreement uh, on it last week that it, it is unlike anything else you will see around at the moment. Number 10, in the 10, Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical. It's still there. Still there. It's still there. Uh, number nine is Babylon. And on and on and on and on and on. Number eight here, number seven in the States is Megan. Which I would advise, if you get a moment, I mean, probably when it comes to streaming services, do check it out because I think you'll enjoy it just because the satire in it is funny. Uh, number seven in the UK, The Fablemans. Not charted in America. Well, did it? Yeah, it kind of, it flopped in America, didn't it? It was one of the, I mean, it opened last year and it was one of the big prestige Oscar bait releases that didn't take any money, which was why when I was doing my review of it, I said it's, you know, it's it's awards bait because the critics were fawning over it and it was getting all these big awards nominations, but nobody was going to see it, which is why E.T. is a more interesting film because it's, of course, it is a, it's a, it's a crowd pleaser. Plane is at number six. Gerard Butler on a plane. The plane goes down on an island, an island so scary that the army won't go there because of the last time they did, they got their ass kicked. So Gerard and his mate have to save the day, and it's ridiculous, but I kind of enjoyed it. A new entry at uh, number five is The Whale. Yes, I was very sorry that you were off last week because I don't know whether you listened to the show, but your interview with Brendan Fraser and Darren Aronofsky was yes. terrific. And... What what I said was that the genius of the interview was not only did you, you know, did you kind of get to the heart of the film, but I also think that you kind of allowed Aronofsky and Brendan Fraser to be hoist by their own petard in as much as all the things that I don't like about the film were stuff that they sort of said. Now, Robbie took issue with whether or not when Aronofsky said it's a small movie with a big heart, whether he was being ironic or whether he was towing the line, or whether that's what he actually thinks. So now that you're here, when Darren Aronofsky said, it's a small movie with a big heart, which is the kind of thing that makes me want to tear my ears off and actually is exactly what I don't like about the film, do you think he meant it, or do you think he was just towing a line? I think he, I think he probably meant it. I understand, I understand what he was saying, so I would think it was... A line he'd probably used before. Yes, no, absolutely. And he's quite happy with that line because by the time we, we get go. by the time we get to these people, they've done these interviews in the states yeah. and so on. So there are usually lines that they've tried before, and he, I think he was happy with the line. But so. what Robbie was saying was, I don't believe for one minute that Darren Aronofsky thinks he's made a, a small movie with a big heart, and I do. Uh, Alex on Twitter, as much as it wasn't a comfy watch given the known outcome and the characters felt unsympathetic, I still enjoyed everything about The Whale. I've watched a lot of theatre at the cinema in recent years and this, despite being a film, still felt like that. Mm. Okay. Mm. Um, Fraser says, Marcus and Simeon, uh, despite being a voracious long-term podcast listener, I've never contacted a podcast, but something so strangely specific happened in a recent episode, I feel obligated to write. Okay. As you, Mark, were questioning why the name Fraser was always pronounced Fraser, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, says okay. Fraser. I once had a science teacher who mispronounced my name on every mention, despite correcting them at every single roll call. Yeah. Little did I know at the time, but this mispronunciation would become a lifelong annoyance that I have long since stopped correcting. Precisely. I could describe my reaction to your support as animated. <laughs> and I hope no other I'm people so in cars nearby saw my supportive display. <laughs> After many decades of Fraser Fraser prejudice, I must say I feel strangely seen. <laughs> and thank you for your wonderful or sheen. I mean, yeah, it's just it is absolutely baffling. How why would anyone look at Fraser and go Fraser? 
I would say, incidentally, that it's it's not in the same league. I spend my life telling people it's Kermode, not Commode, but it makes no difference. So it's like people often correct me to my face. So I'll go, you know, like if I go into the phone shop or something, you know, what's your name? Um, uh, Dr. Kermode. Uh, oh, Dr. Kermode. No. No. I, but you go, yeah, all right, fine. Frank Kermode, who you mentioned, mentioned earlier on, yeah. gave up correcting people. My mum, Audrey Kermode, when trying to book a hotel room in the Isle of Man, which is where the name comes from, and it's a contraction of McDiarmid, said that the point at which she lost hope was when she was trying to book a hotel room in the Isle of Man, and she said, Audrey Kermode, and they said, how do you spell it? And she went, oh, for heaven's sake. The only story I have that's ever close to that is on a, uh, we were booking a family holiday to Ireland. County Mayo. Well. <laughs> I can see this well, coming. <laughs> preci precisely right. And we were booking it. And the receptionist said, Mayo, that's a funny name. And I said, well, County <laughs> Mayo? Mayo? Oh, yes. So. Yeah. <laughs> Staying at the wrong hotel. Anyway, thank you, Fraser. You are yes. seen. Fraser, thank you very much. Uh, Daniel from Calgary, Alberta. Oh, this is on Patan. Yes. Okay, uh, number okay, four. Number four. Uh, here and number 10 in America. Dear Patan and Tiger, I just left a screening of Patan, the fifth installment in the YRF spy universe. Okay. Is that right? Given my enjoyment of RRR, I was eager to catch more South Asian cinema. Patan, however, left much to be desired. My biggest gripe with the film was that all the action bits were lifted directly from better action movies. In the first 30 minutes, themes and sequences from John Wick, Skyfall, The Winter Soldier and Ghost Protocol are evoked or even ripped off entirely with no attempt at innovation or excitement. And when the filmmakers aren't assaulting your senses with overlong and poorly CGI'd set pieces, the film relies heavily on the fading boyish charms of King Khan himself. I cringed watching 57-year-old Khan dance around scantily clad women and deliver tacky one-liners. His performance lends ironic credence to a gag in the film in which Khan eludes to his retirement before resolving that he should not retire. Derivative, boring, cringeworthy. Patan was disappointing, to say the least. I would categorise this as mindless entertainment, as he very well may need a lobotomy to actually enjoy it. <laughs> he didn't like it. OK, well, there we go. I mean... I mean, I'm a Shah Rukh Khan fan, I have to say, but then the whole, I, there was once when Shah Rukh Khan starred in a film and I had written a review of it and I woke up in the morning. This was when I was still on Twitter before Elon Musk is an idiot who destroyed everything and made the world poorer. I remember that. Um, uh, and I woke up and I, overnight I had gained several thousand followers and I thought, what on earth happened? It turned out Shah Rukh Khan had like tweeted or something. It was like, wow, you think you know how big a movie superstar is? And then you meet an actual movie superstar. And I said, wow. So are you forgiving him as a 57-year-old dancing around scantily clad women making tacky one-liners? I mean, it's not the first time. Uh, number three in the UK, number one in the US, that's Knock at the Cabin. I'm interested to know whether anyone has got in touch about uh, The Rapture, because Robbie and I disagreed about this. Robbie liked this very much, the new M. Night Shyamalan film. I mean, I think M. Night Shyamalan films were a bit hit and miss. Some of them I like. I liked Old, um, and I, I liked uh, Glass, but, I, you know, Robbie liked this more than I did. Setup is a uh, same-sex couple with an adopted child are in a cabin. Four people turn up, led by Dave Bautista, say the world's going to end unless one of you kills one of you. 
So of the three of you, one of you has to die. And, has to, and they go, well, we don't believe you. And they go, well, if you don't believe us, the apocalypse is going to happen. So it's a kind of, you know, what if tale of the unexpected. I didn't think it worked very well. But I thought it reminded me of a much better film, which is Michael Tolkien's The Rapture, which is the absolute classic what if this stuff were real film. David, on our YouTube channel, the opening scene in Blade Runner 2049 is almost up there with the opening scene in Inglorious Bastards. This is because Dave Batista is the person who sets the tone of the oh, Blade I see. Runner scene. Batista yeah. truly has a remarkable presence, and there really is no one like him working in movies today. There isn't. Stephen Lilly, also on our YouTube channel, I was a big wrestling fan back in the early 2000s, the age of Batista, John Cena, and Twilight Years of The Rock. If you told me at that point that A, all three of them would be box office successes, and B, I would actually utter the words, Batista is by far the best actor of the three, I'd have laughed. Keep up the good word, Dave. Batista is great, and he's really good in Glass Onion as well. He's very funny in that film. Uh, UK number two, number three in the States is Avatar, Way of Water. Now, here's the thing. When I was off sick, yes, um, I watched a lot of stuff. Okay. Okay. And I watched... Avatar Way of Water. Oh. And I'm here to tell you that you watched it wrong. Okay. First of all, you have to watch it when you're sick. Okay. <laughs> Secondly, I watched it in three parts. Ah. I watched it in three hourly episodes with a John Wick movie in between each. <laughs> and I enjoyed it. Okay. That's the, I have to say it was like, okay, I've had an hour. There's John Wick. There's another hour. John Wick too. Because there's more John Wick. Okay. Uh, on the well, all I can say is, it, right, in that case, imagine watching it without the John Wick movies in between and without the toilet breaks, but just in one great big head-thumping three-hour stodgathon. I was still surprised, even though one of our correspondents had pointed it out a couple of weeks ago, quite how sort of anti-imperialist it feels and oh, implicitly yeah, anti-American imperialism and also how you end up, in the words of our correspondent, on the side of the Viet Cong or indigenous folk in general, you know, and I was I was quite surprised by that. And it's so it's so bold. It's like you know. I did also think that the underwater stuff, the underwater uh, world building, was so much better than Wakanda uh, movie two. Oh, okay. That okay. You're thinking, okay, and I admired that. But but you had set the bar so, so low <laughs> that I was appreciative of <laughs> yeah. of everything. Well, in that case, I take that as a compliment. I, I I made the experience better for you, although not as much better as watching two John Wick movies during the during. It really the- is a great way of watching it. I tell you. <laughs> Uh, and the UK number one, number four in the States is Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. So I, let me read some yeah. of this stuff because uh, I wasn't here last week. It was week, all so. right. Richard in Amsterdam, you should really see Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. It's easily one I of the best animated films of the last five years. I have years. seen it. I reviewed it. Tristan in Japan. Mark seemed to have seen the Oscars nomination list before seeing the movie and therefore ended up mostly shrugging it off as, quotes, not as good as Del Toro's Pinocchio, simply because the two films were put on the same arbitrary list. I think this was an unfair stance to take on Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, especially as little was mentioned regarding the production and themes of Puss in Boots. Personally, I think the themes of mortality and family are handled well, uh, Puss and Goldilocks are two characters who are chasing after what they think it means to live and to be loved respectively and have to learn what living and love really are. Um, That does not make it... uh, I'm just skipping it a little bit here. I also think that Puss in Boots has a fun, energetic score, fantastic animation and a great voice cast that Mark was a little harsh on. I mean, are you really going to complain about Antonio Banderas, Olivia Colman and Florence Pugh playing off each other? I didn't complain about Antonio Banderas uh, and uh, Olivia. I said that the the voices were good. Uh, Seth on YouTube. I said Antonio Banderas, I want him to 
lie next to me on my pillow and whisper sweet nothings in my ear with that voice. Joining uh, the chorus of people surprised that Mark didn't care for this one, it's not as overtly art with a message as Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, but it still has a good amount going on thematically. The script is as tight as a drum, the animation is frequently outstanding and the jokes pretty much all hit. Fantastic film, absolutely deserving of its nomination and for my money, an easy pick, at least over the Sea Beast, Marcel and Turning Red. And Joanna in Seattle... Better than turning red. No, re- no, 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 no. I no, really, no, no. Joanna in Seattle, I really enjoyed Mark's review of Pinocchio last week. Note to the pod producer, though, he seemed to do it in place of a review of Puss in Boots, <laughs> The Last Wish. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Puss in Boots, number one. Yeah, well, meh. But a lot of people. Yeah, well, that's fine, you know. It's, it, it's uh, difference of opinion is what makes the world go round. Is that right? Yeah. Thank you very much for all the correspondence. We welcome all the correspondence. Unless uh, the difference of opinion is delivered by Marjorie Taylor Greene, in which case... Well, she's an idiot. Go boil your head. Um, correspondence at KermitAmeo.com. We would love to hear from you for next week. Now, our guest today, uh, the star of Till, Daniel Deadweiler, yes. who plays Mamie Till Bradley in extraordinary movie uh, called Till, and Barbara Broccoli, who's producer of the film, one of the producers of the film. Now... Uh, when we recorded this earlier in the week, Danielle is in Atlanta, which is her hometown. Yep. Uh, and Barbara was in New York. Unfortunately, Barbara, as you're about to hear, was having a whole host of technical difficulties, uh, which is a great shame because the production side of this story is is quite interesting. So we did lose her line uh, quite soon into the interview. In fact, she said, look, I'm going to have to go because I want Danielle to tell this story. Yeah. So you hear a very, very brief bit uh, with Barbara, but we're lucky enough to have more time with the fantastic Danielle Deadweiler, and you'll hear the interview uh, with both of them after this clip from Till. When you get down oh, there... not again, Mama. I've already been in Mississippi. Only one time before, and you started a fight with another little boy. He was picking on me. You're in the right to stand up for yourself, but that's not what I'm talking about. They have a different set of rules for Negroes down there. Are you listening? Yes. You have to be extra careful with white people. You can't risk looking at them the wrong way. I know. And that is a clip from the movie Till. It stars Daniel Deadwell. I'm delighted to say she's joined us. Uh, Also producer of the movie, Barbara Broccoli, has joined us. Hello, Danielle. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And where where are we speaking to you from? Where are you? I am presently in Atlanta, Georgia, in the southeastern United States. <laughs> and and Barbara, thank you very much for joining us. Where are you? Where are you speaking to us from? I just landed in New York from London. Okay. All right. So it's bad timing on our behalf. So apo- apo- apologies for that. Happy to be talking to you, Simon. Well, it's an extraordinary film, and Danielle puts in an extraordinary performance, a BAFTA-nominated Best Actress performance. Danielle, maybe you're in Atlanta, maybe you're the best placed person to tell the story. I know a lot of people have lived with the, the this story for uh, decades. Others will be approaching it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Could you just introduce us to this film in your own words? This film is an exploration of the complex emotional journey that Mamie Till takes when she supports her son and his independence and travels to Sumner, Mississippi to visit family. And we learn of his horrible, tragic lynching in Mississippi by the hands of uh, a cadre of white men. And we also witness her come to terms with how she wants to fight for justice and her traveling down to Mississippi to confront 
the the space of Southern white uh, supremacy and how she comes out on the other end to a different kind of brilliance and a different kind of motherhood as a result of, of the journey. And the story of Emmett Till has been told many ways, Barbara Broccoli, but it hasn't been told like this before. How long have you been trying to get this movie made? Well, the, the group of producers of which I'm just one of, we've all been working on this for about 18 years. The main producer and the reason that we became involved was uh, Keith Beauchamp, who, when he was about 10 years of age, saw the photograph of Emmett Till. And when his parents explained what happened to him, Keith decided to go on his whole life, go on a journey to try and find justice for Emmett Till. So we encountered Keith about 18 years ago, and he'd made a documentary about Emmett Till. He was very close to Mrs. Till. She was his mentor for eight and a half years. And we have been trying to make this film (laughs) since then. And in fact, Mamie Till wanted to make the film way back in 1955. So it's it's actually a 67, almost 68-year journey. Danielle, uh, we've we've lost... Barbara, there was something about the New York signal. It just wasn't working. So thank you for, for being patient uh, in Atlanta. So we got, a, we got a little flavor from Barbara about how long this movie has taken and why it's taken so long. Can you tell us something about how you became this extraordinary woman, about becoming Mamie and the process that you went through? Yeah, it's time, right? It's all about time and patience and the rigor and discipline and in reverence for what you have to explore. They did, they gave 18 years of it, right? And for me, I came into the fold around May, June of 2021. And so I had a good three months of prep, but I dare say a lifetime of prep too, because I've known about it since I was in elementary school, but this very surface level that we're given, right? And, and yet, because of my family was introduced to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and we attended the Cascade United Methodist Church when I was a child. And so these institutions are pivotal to the civil rights movement. They also were led by Reverend Dr. Joseph Lowry and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who were both obviously deeply impacted by Mamie Till's choices. And so those people whom worked with the folks who were uh, integral in my education and 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 volunteerism and activism as a child were just as intimate with Mamie right up until you know her, the the transition of her from this you know realm in 2003 and so i carry all that information from those people into this preparation in the summer of 2021 and Chinoya and i just really deeply 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 dug into the crates of everything we possibly could inclusive of archival images and archival footage looking at Sumner Mississippi looking at Chicago really getting a feel for the aesthetic of this of the space and time of of Mississippi and Chicago 1955 we saw images and footage of the the court the courtroom dynamic and and Mamie walking and 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 navigating this space which was very very white and very very antagonistic also her her memoir Death of Innocence which was co-written was a pivotal a bible of sorts for me uh because it is the before and the after 
of of life like her the her her rearing with her mother her her difficult birth with uh Emmett the relationship she had with Emmett's father the relationship she had uh after Emmett's father leading up to being with Jean the dynamic that she had with Jean, uh that Jean had with Emmett all of that is 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 definitive in helping to paint a picture of of the life they lived. You've mentioned your director a couple of times. Chinoya she's Chuthu. phenomenal. Um, <laughs> the way you approach telling the story, my understanding is she was allowed to tell the story anyway. She told it from your your point of view. People might have looked at the certificate in this country. It's a 12A certificate because you've clearly made a decision to keep the murder of Emmett Till mm-hmm. off the screen. Mm-hmm. Could you just explain a little bit about the thinking behind that way of telling this particular story? Chinoya, I think her hand on the script was really critical in getting to the POV of Mamie, of 33-year-old Mamie, because Keith talks about having his relationship with her as his mentor, but he didn't know her at 33. He knows the elder uh, woman. He he does not know the 33-year-old confused, challenged um uh, horrified woman in the nadir of her life. And so if you're coming from a, uh, that critical POV, then there are certain things that Mamie would see and things that she wouldn't. And to be quite honest, nobody saw what happened to Emmett. We saw the ramifications. They did not see what actually happened. So the, the choice is a very intentional technical choice because it just makes logical sense if that is the uh, the 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 purview that you're coming from and then because she is a black woman because she has lived in America this is a critical care intention to not show violence because we have witnessed it over and over and over and over and continue to witness it over and over again. And yet it's a story that we know still has to be told, but there are ways in which we can intentionally, lovingly, gracefully bring people into this kind of knowledge and experience. It's it's about not re-traumatizing. I wonder if you could just illustrate a little part of that by talking about one particular scene, the courtroom scene, Mm-hmm. where you are giving your testimony. Uh, we see it, I think it's seven pages of script, if I've yeah. remembered that right. It's a, it's shot in close-up. And I think the original idea was that your director was going to cut and do different shots and take it from different points of view. But at the end of your first take, she said, that's it. And everyone gave you a round of applause or a standing ovation. Have I got that right or has that been retold wrong? It's close. You you messed up the telephone. <laughs> okay. It's close. But the only shift is we did it we did it up, upwards of six times because what she did see or and that and was hit with a spirit of intu- intuitiveness of a spirit of creative surprise and following that kind of unknown because of technical issues. She wanted to really like bring people into the fold of the entire environment. So be enabling the the audience to stay with the pupils that are telling the story, to stay with that body, that mind, that to stay with Mamie, and yet to know, oh, in the background are the 12 jurors. Oh, here are the 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 attorneys. That is who she is engaging. Oh, the judge is behind her. Oh, you can just infer that there is an uh, audience and it is all white because we've seen it that is that is listening to her share this story. And then there's a memento of the ring. And then there is, you know, it's 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 all kinds of beautiful movement that is within the wonder 
but then forcing you to continue to engage with who we're asking you to witness now. We, you've witnessed um, these images of Emmett, but now we want you to continue to witness this, this retelling, to witness the love and, and the shift that happens and how, you know, it's how the district attorney engages her and then how the defense attorney engages her. And, and it's, that's, that's critical. This might sound crass, but I don't mean it to be. Your face is doing a lot of work. Your eyes are ex- <laughs> your your eyes are extraordinary. You're telling the whole story, and we're seeing it in close up, and that's astonishing. I thought you got to look at somebody. She's imploring the the jury to look at her. She's imploring the attorneys who she looks at to look at her, to listen, to 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 understand what she is is going through. And therein you're implore, you're, you're you're inciting the the audience to have a confrontation of sorts with the the aftermath of what it means to to lose, to have such deep visceral grief. Yeah, the face is doing a lot of work because there's a tension. She's trying to ride the fine line of being respectable and telling a truth and yet being deeply antagonized by the the entire milieu and the the attorney, you know. And so she stretched in trying to hold and save face and be as honest as she can be and fight for justice in this moment. And it kind of crumbling and yet being a deeply, deeply courageous endeavor of love. Does a role like this... Danielle, come with a cost. I mean, I wonder. Yeah, I wonder whether you know you deliberately had to sort of look after yourself because what you go through and what we all go through watching this movie with you is is traumatic. Mm-hmm. From an actor's point of view, does that make sense or not? No, of course it makes sense. It makes total sense. I mean, there is a cost. There's a, a psychic cost. There's a a physical cost, an emotional one. I'm a mother to a 13 year old, and at the same time, I, along with everyone else who witnesses this film or you know hears residual conversation about this film, has to deal with its place in history, its present in history, and what are you going to damn do about it in the aftermath? You know, I I have to have those same conversations with my child. That was the, the the stirring thing for me a lot of the time. Oh, my conversation parallels. I might be in a different space. We're seemingly having movement of a legal quality by having the anti-lynching bill that was passed in 2022 and seemingly having a, a progress because of the integration of education in schools. And yet here we are back again with Governor Ron DeSantis trying to eradicate black and queer lineages from the the, the education uh, of AP American, African-American history courses. And yet these things are residual. And yet we lose another, yeah. you know, human being, beautiful young man in Tyree Nichols. It's systemic. It's systemic. And so we have to understand that, like, yeah, we're constantly dealing with this and it merits a a different kind of radical fight. And on that systemic point, then, your director, uh, Chinoya Chuku, said, just this is just after, because I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that you're nominated for a BAFTA Best uh, Mm -hmm. Actress. But when you missed out on the Oscar nomination, which seems incredible, Mm -hmm. Chinoya said, she messaged, we live in a world and work in industries that are so aggressively committed to upholding whiteness and perpetuating an unabashed misogyny towards blackness. Mm -hmm. You agree with that, I imagine. That's the the system you're talking about. 
I mean, assuredly, that's what that is. Uh, we've seen, this is the thing. If it, if it existed in a, in a governmental capacity, right? And it can exist on a societal capacity, be it global or American national, right? Then it has had its residual effects. It is in our quotidian life. It is in our industries. It is a rampant thing. Everyone, right? Has to assess and investigate, source out and make more equitable the, the spaces in which have not been. We can't, I mean, Hattie McDaniel couldn't even attend the ceremony, right? She had to be in the back. Nobody is uh, absolved of not participating in racism and not knowing that there is a possibility of its lingering affect on the spaces that and the institutions that you've created. And you think if, that's what, and is that what we're talking about here in the lack of nomination? at the Oscars. We're talking about people who perhaps did, chose not to see the film. We're talking about m- massage noir. Like it comes in all kinds of ways, whether it's direct or indirect, it impacts who we are. They did the critical assessment. I think the, the question is more uh, intent on people who are living in, in, in whiteness, white, white people's assessment of what the spaces that they are privileged by are doing. Uh, Danielle, we're out of time, but I appreciate you speaking to us very much. Um, and yeah. also Barbara, just briefly earlier, and congratulations on the BAFTA nomination. And I hope I hope you win. I hope, I hope you get to make a speech <laughs> and you can say all that, say all that again. Uh, you know what? I've, I've won. It's, it's, uh, it's a beauty to share this film. And I thank you for having us. Danielle, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Danielle Deadweiler, um, and briefly Barbara Broccoli. She's an impressive woman. She's a force of nature. I mean, that's uh, w- one of the things that, I mean, we talked about this in the review, is that um, because by its nature, Till tr- tries to keep its register, you know, below boiling point, it doesn't show the the atrocities. It, it It's a drama that wants to engage everybody. And I think one of the reasons that, I mean, it was interesting when uh, Danielle Deweyler said, I think some of them chose not to see it. Mm. Um, And I I think it's certainly true that it wasn't widely seen uh, as it should have been. Um, But there is also the thing, when you hear her talking passionately about it like that, because what's interesting about the film is that it's, and this is very much Janoi Chukwu's thing, is that it's very much about holding the register back about, about you know, understatement. And understatement doesn't play well with awards voters. Yes. It's, you know. But not about re-traumatising. No, which was, which was, yeah. And so I thought that was absolutely fascinating. But I do think it's true that, you know, there are give me an awards performances and her performance in Till is not one of them. Uh, well, I hope not she, that it, not that it doesn't deserve one, but it's yeah. not it's not a performance. It's not Brendan Fraser in the whale. I did I did say to her, are you are you going to the BAFTA? She said, "Yep, absolutely." So good for her. Know, uh, let's hope she wins. Yeah, and let's yeah. hope she gets to make that speech. Uh, thanks to Daniel Deadweiler. Uh, Till is the movie. Uh, correspondence at kermanandmayo.com. Love to hear from you about any of these movies that we're talking about. What else is out? Magic Mike's Last Dance. I'm a huge Magic Mike fan, so I was really excited. Uh, 2012, you know, the original, the Soderbergh Magic Mike, screed by, a script by Reed Carolyn, inspired in part by Channing Tatum's time as a male stripper in Tampa, Florida. And it was a resounding hit. Gritty, feel-good, romantic, earthy, all the things that you want the film to be. Sometime later, 2015, there's the sequel, Magic Mike XXL, not directed by Soderbergh, but um, still pretty good. I mean, not as good as the original, but had some great set pieces in it, and the dance numbers were really, really good. Now, Magic Mike's Last Dance. Uh, Channing Tatum is back in the lead role. Soderbergh's back in the director's chair. Reed Carolyn, with whom Tatum co-directed Dog, which remember I loved, which I thought was really great, uh, back on screenplay duties. Uh, Film picks up 
Mike is now a barman. Um, he's doing a charity event gig for a very wealthy woman played by Summer Hayek Pinot. She's called Max. He is serving bar, and one of the attendees at the at the gala recognizes him. Here's a clip. What's up, bro? Two, Two vodka sodas? Two vodka sodas. Hey, I know you. You went to state, right? <laughs> state? No, definitely not. Huh. We've definitely met. Uh, no, I don't know. Sorry. Don't freak the guy out, huh? I don't know. <laughs> Holy shit, I got it. You really don't remember? I don't know. Was it at my store? No. You were a cop, right? What's your name? Kim? Uh, yeah, like way back in the day, yeah. Uh-huh. So she Explain now, that little flashback sequence. Then. So basically the flashback is that he turns up at the door in a cop's you know, outfit and he says, your name, and the next thing is he's... Hello! He's hello. <laughs> and we're back to Colour of Night and, 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 and all that stuff. So Max then hears uh, that, that this is what he did and she says, oh, you know, I hear that you can provide certain services that will relieve me of my tension. And uh, she pays him, uh, very Rocky Horror, and she pays him some money and he provides a dance, which, of course, in the standard Channing Tatum way is unbelievably athletic and does all the stuff. We can all do that. Okay, so, you know, on board, blah, blah, blah. She then says, right, I'm going to pay you a certain amount of money to come with me to London for an undisclosed mission. He thinks, oh, I'm going to be like a, you know, like a, I'm going to be her toy or something. No, no, no. The undisclosed mission is she's in the middle of a messy divorce and she owns a theatre. And the theatre is showing a very old-fashioned play, and she wants to spice the play up by getting Mike in to direct it and therefore throw in some... And you go, sorry, pardon? So, hang on. So, Magic Mike, the thing we all love, the thing we all go, you'll bring it to London. How do we know it's London? Well, there's a shot, there's a kind of montage that goes, Tower Bridge, badge, cup, badge, cup, bus... Postbox, and I and I kind of wondered whether it was de- I, it was deliberately naff, whether it was deliberately the worst, and I think actually it might be a joke about how those montages are terrible, and then he gets to the theatre, and the theatre is a play about people doing stuffy, 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 and Magic Mike comes in and then says, "Yeah, no, we don't want to do that. What happens is you 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 call for a for drink, and then and then it's stripping stuff, and I'm sitting there going." I don't believe you've made a bad Magic Mike movie. The, all the people are in place. I love all the people. I love the thing. I love the setup. I like the dance. How have you managed to spoil this? What meeting did you have when somebody said, I know, we take it to London to a failing old fusty show and we... T-? You're going, no, no, that's not what happens. Firstly... You take Magic Mike out of the thing that makes Magic Mike interesting, which is that it's a gritty kind of, you know, it, it's, it's actually a story about somebody earning a living and somebody having, you know, romantic dreams and all the rest of it. And you put them in a thing in which they're, they're suddenly they're posh, suddenly they're driving around in Rolls Royces and suddenly they're going to posh restaurants and suddenly, no, that's not what Magic Mike does. Then there's a joke about a butler who Magic Mike is trying to do his tie, but he doesn't know how to do his tie. He's a stripper. He knows how to do his tie. He knows how to put on every item. He could, you, so you lose the Saturday Night Fever thing, which is this is the thing you have that makes something special, the dream. You know, that brilliant bit in Magic Mike XXL when he's doing the woodwork and he suddenly starts doing the dance on the bench. I, I think I missed that film. Well, you should see them because the first two are great. This is 
to use a word that I believe you got into the uh, you know, Oxford English Dictionary, pants, but not pants in the magic Mike pants sense that I want, but just pants. I mean, the theatre scenes are awful. To make it worse, the whole film is narrated in this with this really annoying child narration, which is like saying out loud all the things that you knew from the always implicit. It's literally got a voiceover telling you the things that are important. On the plus side, the dance numbers are nimble. There's a so there's a sort of rainy one. There's a sort of wet you know wet thing going on. That's kind of all right. A wet but thing, then, but then a wet thing. Then when you're, it's all rain and there's wet on the floor and they're all sliding around. Oh, and it's quite poetic. No, no, that's dangerous. Yeah, uh, 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 but the thing is, I saw this in the West End and the Magic Mike stage show is on there. So I don't. I I was. I really, I came out annoyed, actually. I came out like, I can't believe you messed up Magic Mike because this absolutely kills the magic of Mike. And that's it. No Thank more, you. No more no Magic more. Mike. Pants, pants, pants. Well, this is going to cheer you up now, uh, Mark, because the ads are coming in just a moment. But first, it's time to step into the laughter lift, which I think you need. <laughs> Here we go. <clears throat> Because, Mark, uh-huh. and I'm going to improve your mood. Go on. Went out for a lovely meal en famille at the weekend. Child three said, Dad, can I have a lobster tail, please? They're the most expensive thing on the menu. Of course, I said. Once upon a time, there was a handsome lobster. I could kind of see that coming after yes. Epic Tales, so, though, which sort of spoilt that joke. Chances of child three asking for a lobster tail <laughs> yeah, are zero. Very small. Anyway, once the laughter had died down, I said to the waiter... What's the difference between roast beef and pea soup? He said, neither of them are on the menu, sir. This is a seafood restaurant. I said, if you want a tip, you'll play along, Sonny Jim. I'll ask you once again. What's the difference between roast beef and pea soup? I don't know, sir. What's the difference between roast beef and pea soup? Anyone can roast beef, sunshine. Here's a tenner. (laughs) Okay, well done. That's it. You kind of recovered. By the way, Mark, our guest that evening was our friend Roger, who worships... A colour between green and blue on the visible spectrum of light. Between the wavelengths of green and blue. He is a Scientologist. Oh, I see, I see, I see, I see. I mean, it's written down joke, yeah, really. Yeah, C-Y-A-N. Yeah. Anyway, what yeah. else have we got still to come, uh, as far as you're concerned? Blue Jean, which is uh, a big independent awards winner, yes. and Women Talking, which is a new film by Sarah Polly. Back after this, unless you're a Vanguard Easter, in which case your hair looks great just like that, and your service will not be interrupted. Hey, it's Ben Bailey Smith here, Substitute Taker, and this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, schmestions. You know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days, and everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash kermode. That's betterhelp.com slash kermode. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. 
The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Okay, more reviews uh, coming up in just a moment. Um, interesting email from Martin Rousen, who, uh, yes. yeah, Cartoon- Guardian no. cartoonist, cartoonist, Daily Mirror cartoonist, who has corresponded before. Simon, Mark, regarding Mark's Tromso jaunt, Trumsi. did he and the band get to and from the airport via the tunnel under the island? Yes. Which has two roundabouts, like yeah. something out of Thunderball. Now, that's how to spend your sovereign wealth fund Though in Norway, you need one of those to buy a beer, yeah, which is do. also which yeah, is also wow. incredible. Unbelievable. A pizza and a beer. How much? Uh, but forget Greenland, says Martin. You should have your eyes on Svalbard by initiating the first Long Year Bien film festival. Plus, there's polar bears, thousands of walruses, and the world's most northerly bust of Lenin in the Russian mining enclave <laughs> across the fjord from Long Bien. That's more impressive than the world's most northerly Burger King. Why have you come here? We've come to see the most northerly bust of Lenin in the Russian mining enclave. Are you a guardian, right? Yes, I see. Okay, that all makes sense. Uh, Nothing to say about Avatar, the way of water, as seeing just that... I think you'll like this, okay. Nothing to say about Avatar, the way of water, as just seeing the first film is still at the top of my anti-bucket list. (laughs) Not things that I want to do before I die, but things Things I'd rather... Things I hadn't done. No, but things I'd rather die than do. Oh, right. (laughs) Even better. That's even better. By the way, the last time you read out an email of mine, all sorts of people around the world expressed amazement and wonder, as if I touched the hem of the remnants <laughs> of passing gods or miraculous springs had gushed from the earth where your shadows had chanced to fall. Who knew? Anyway, I think it's Martin Rosen, not Rouse. I know why I said Rouse. Anyway, Martin Rosen, fantastic cartoonist, yes. occasional contributor and lover of the northerly bust of Lenin. An all-round top bloke. So Svalbard, I think that's quite... I didn't really know very much about Svalbard until I read about it in uh, His Dark Materials in the uh, Philip Pullman, where there's a lot of polar bear action (laughs) taking place in Svalbard. But Martin, thank you. Correspondence at Codemo.com. What else uh, have we got to go and see this week? Women Talking is the new film by Sarah Polly. It is up for two Academy Awards, uh, Best Adapted Screenplay and uh, Best Motion Picture of the Year. It is adapted from... Uh, the 2018 novel by Miriam Taves, which was itself inspired by horrific real-life events that were uncovered in a Mennonite community in Bolivia uh, in 2009. Essentially, the story is that uh, in a cloistered religious community, the uh, women have been uh, suffering in the night uh, sexual assaults that are that they are told by the men are either the work of demons or ghosts or just wild female imagination. One night, one of the potential uh, victims sees one of the attackers coming in through the window and, uh, and, and the jig is up. A series of men are then taken off to the police station and the rest of the men go to bail them out. And for a very brief period, the women who have been suffering these assaults for a long time, drugged assaults, suddenly have a 24-hour, 48-hour period in which they have to decide what they are going to do. They have three options. They can do nothing. They can stay and fight for change and fight for their 
their own safety within the community, or they can leave. And what happens in the in the both the novel and in the film, both called Women Talking, is which which are described incidentally in the film and by Miriam Taves as an act of female imagination, is they have to conceive a future. They have to imagine what they might do. So there's there's a hayloft which kind of becomes like a makeshift courtroom. And the whole thing plays out like, to my mind, a cross between Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, and Marlene Goris's electrifying psychodrama, A Question of Silence. Here is a clip. The film is absolutely star-studded and he has an extraordinary uh, cast, but here is a clip from Women Talking. I want to stay and fight. But won't we lose the fight to the men and be forced to forgive them anyway? I want to stay and fight too. No one's surprised that you do. All you do is fight. Is this really how we are to decide the fates of all the women in this colony? Just another vote where we put an X next to our position? I thought we were here to do more than that. You mean talk more about forgiving the men and doing nothing? Everything else is insane, but none of you will listen to reason. Well, why are you here with us? Why are you still here with us if that is what you believe? Just leave with the rest of the do-nothing women. She is my daughter, and I want her here with us. Is forgiveness that's forced upon us true forgiveness? Keep nonsense like that to yourself, please. So the cast includes Rooney Mara, Judith Obey, um, uh Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, Michelle McLeod, Francis McDormand. Oh. Ben, I mean, like, it's it's an extraordinary the kind of cast. actors that you'd turn up and see in anything, really. Precisely, and the whole film is essentially the debate about what to do. Now, this may sound like it's going to be, you know, very stagey and very polemical. I've now seen Women Talking three times, and the first time I saw it, I, I liked it. I thought it was, you know, gripping, and I, the, the fact that the story has its roots in a real story is kind of, you know, horrifying, but also very engaging. Second time I saw it, I thought, actually, this is really good. This is a really good bit of filmmaking from Sarah Polly, who, of course, made Stories We Tell, which is a really interesting documentary that sort of reveals itself to be not quite what you think it is. I don't want to give the game away, but it's a film about how artifice and reality can become blurred. The third time I saw it, I thought, actually, this is a masterpiece. And I'll tell you what happened during those um, changes. The first time I saw it, I was just really impressed by by the dialogue, by the fact that they are wrestling with matters of life and death. They are mat matters of, of gender, matters of... Um, self-determination, of religion, of wrestling with the central idea that they are faced with an impossible conundrum, which is that the, the, in their religion, the only people that can forgive them are the men who they are might be turning their back on. So they are, it's like you have to forgive them, otherwise you'll be cast out of the kingdom of heaven. If you leave the community, when God arrives, how will he know where you are? So there is this complete mismatch between theological, um, you know, uh, uh, philosophy and what's happening at ground level. And yet they are absolutely determined that what they want is their safety, their religion, which is absolutely part of who they are, and the ability to define the future, but despite the fact that they've been brought up in a community in which they cannot read and read or write. So therefore, Ben Wishaw's character, August, who is a school teacher, is brought in to take the minutes of the meeting. Now, in the novel, it's his voice. It's it's um, the minutes of the meeting are the form of the novel. In the film, the narrator is that role is passed on to a teenage girl talking, recounting the events. And the more I watched it, and bear in mind I've seen it three times, the more I started to think this is a really smart piece of filmmaking, for three main reasons. Firstly, 
there are flashbacks, but the flashbacks are used to illuminate the discussions, but not to do more than that. And the atrocities are kept off screen. Secondly, people talking about philosophical ideas may may be dry, unless the people who are doing that stuff are doing it in a way in which you are reading in their faces and their expressions and their voices and their mannerisms more than what they are saying. So they are saying one thing, but they are also saying another thing at the same time. And the third thing is that there is a very, very understated, but actually brilliant score by Hilda Goodnadotter, which I was surprised didn't get Oscar nominated because for a while, Variety were talking about it as a possible winner. It is sparse and it is used sparingly, but it is used rather brilliantly. I mentioned that um, it reminded me of uh, Marlene Garris' question of silence. I was also reminded, weirdly enough, because the, the color is desaturated. Yeah. So in, in that little clip, which we which we heard, but also we, in the studio, yeah. we watched it for a moment. I thought it was black, black and white. white. Yeah. So the desaturation is really interesting, and the way in which she uses color and brings it in and takes it out. I mean, at certain points, I was even thinking of like the Wizard of Oz, the early scenes of the Wizard of Oz, which is a black and white world, which then gives gives way to a color world. There is a kind of suggestion that there is that there is a there is a more full color world somewhere out there, but you're not in it yet. You, you know, you may never actually be in it. It may be over the rainbow, which is, uh, you know. But I really found myself on the third viewing thinking, this is so expertly done that I'm not even thinking about the filmmaking. I'm just thinking about how much I'm drawn into the drama. Now, here's what's interesting. Last week, I was saying that I thought the whale was stagey, stagey, stagey. I can understand how one might imagine that that was true of women talking, particularly since I myself compared it to a stage play with the Arthur Miller thing. But it isn't. It's profoundly cinematic. It's brilliantly written. It's wonderfully played. It raises so many intriguing questions, particularly for somebody like me who has, you know, wrestled with theological issues in a very cod manner, I'm sure. But it's not exclusive. I mean, it's the whole thing about women talking. Oh, well, it's just going to be a film for women in that case. No, absolutely not. It is a film that is about fundamental core issues of your own ability to determine your life. Yes, of course, it's absolutely about gender and feminism, and uh, but it's not. It, it it it's not a completely binary film either. There are characters in it who who, who are non-binary, and I just. I think it's a real masterpiece, and I think I think it's been kind of overlooked somewhat in a in the same way that Till has. I think it deserves. I mean, it's up for best film, so it hasn't been completely overlooked. But uh, I mean, that is something obviously. But but I think it's a really fine piece. I'd love you to see it because I really want to know what you think of it. I would. It sounds absolutely intriguing, and I, and it does sound as though it's it's a must watch. I wonder if they. I wonder where the title. Came from the title is a little bit low. No, here's women, so, women, women talking. Okay, is so, that it? Yeah, so there is a there's a, a there's a moment in the novel in which one of the, the says, "What what's going on? What are you doing there? You know, you're conspiring." No, it's no conspiracy. It's only women talking. the The whole point is it's women talking, which is in itself a revolutionary act. One of the first things they learn to do in the doing thing is they learn to vote. So it's like a kind of the microcosm is into the silence comes the voices of women, and that's why the title. Was that you or me? That's what I'm so sorry. That's why the title is brilliant, because what it says is everything and nothing. On the one hand, it's women talk. It's only women talking, but it's women talking. Stop making a noise, my terrible phone. I'm so I'm so apologetic. That's right. Was it an important message? No. Okay. It was. It's 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 the other half who knows that I'm doing this. Oh, she should know better. 
Women, that's not an appropriate time then to then move on to... Okay, women talking. Okay, so... Yes, that's right. It is it, it is a woman texting. Women texting. Is the, it's the slightly futuristic follow-up. Well, I'm intrigued. Yeah. I am definitely uh, intrigued by that. But why would that have got overlooked? That's well, it has. I mean, it hasn't been. It is up for best film, but I think it should have been up for so much more than that. I think. I think one of the problems is, you know, obviously it's an ensemble cast, therefore you can't pick out any individual cast members. Um, I'm I'm just surprised by the Hilda Goodner Dosses uh, score not being nominated. I'm I, sure I can hear it on a regular basis. You can. On your you can hear it on Scarlet Show. Show. Yeah, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, but please see it because I want to know what you think okay. of it. Definitely. And um, I really apologise for leaving my phone on. Is it a, what, what sort of certificate? It was interesting is that it, the way you were describing it tied it in a little bit to Till in terms of the, the conscious decision to have the atrocities off camera. Yes, yeah. But it is a 15 because of the subject matter. Okay. Uh, what's on? This is where you email us a voice note about your festival uh, or special screening, or you text Mark if you're married to him, <laughs> uh, and you can pass things on like that. Email yours to correspondence at kermanameo.com. Uh, here we go with this week. Hello, Simon and Mark. This is James Fahey in Claremont, California, where we are hosting the 22nd annual Common Good Film Festival. From February 17 to 20, the Common Good Film Festival will be showing high-quality cinema from around the world that celebrates common sense, common decency, and the common good. Anyone concerned with the state of the world can join us at the Claremont Lemley Cinema from February 17 to 20 for a weekend of enlightenment, reassurance, and inspiration. Hello, Mark and Simon. Peter Blunden here, and I want to let all the listeners know about the third annual Romford Horror Film Festival. It takes place over the 23rd to the 26th of February at the Premier Cinema in Romford. As well as short and feature films from around the world, we have horror-related merch and art stalls, plus two very special guests this year, Italian horror royalty, Silvia Colatina and Giovanni Lombardo Radic. And for information on all the lineup and tickets, can be found at romfordhorrorfestival.com. So we had that uh, sounds fantastic. James Fahey and then Paul Blunden uh, letting us know about, first of all, the Common Good Festival and then the Romford Horror Festival, uh, Horror Film Festival. Uh, and uh, if you'd like to uh, do a what's on for us, send us your audio trailer, 20 seconds thereabouts. From wherever you are in the world, correspondence at kermitameo.com. I've just read the text that came in. You know what it said? Is it, it this the woman texting? Yeah, it said... Arrived safely in Exeter. That's so it was literally just telling me because she knows that I worry otherwise. Very good. There so, you go. So there is and, a... and the fault <clears throat> is mine because I shouldn't have had my phone turned on. Well, we're not complaining. We're not complaining. So uh, there's another movie to go and see. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Although Blue... I'm already going to see a couple of them, but now I'm going to... Yeah, so you, this another. is your home. Okay, so uh, Blue Jean, which is a very powerful drama set in the late 80s around the time of Section 28. Do you remember Section 28? Of course I do, yes. For, no, I mean, sorry, it's slightly rhetorical, but so... Section 28 was legislation which attempted to ban the promotion of homosexuality by uh, local councils, finally repealed, I think, at the early part of this century. This is the debut feature from Georgia Oakley, who is up for a BAFTA for Outstanding British Debut, along with her producer, Ellen Sifre. The film was nominated for umpteen biffers, and it won four, including Best Lead Performance uh, for Rosie McEwen. She plays sports teacher Jean who tries to keep her private life separate from work because she knows that she may endanger her job if it's discovered that she's in a same-sex relationship. Her girlfriend, Viv, played by Carrie Hayes, who won Best Supporting Performance at the Biffers, excuse me, is more forthright, can't understand her partner's embarrassment about her sexuality, says, look, you should just be upfront about it. Then Jean realises that one of her students, Lois, played by Lucy Halliday, is being bullied and is being called a lesbian by her classmates. And she feels that she should support her. 
But when Lois starts turning up at the same clubs that she frequents, she feels that a line has been crossed and she has to tell her, you need to stay away. Here's a clip. Hey! What are you doing? You need to leave. Why? You know why. Do whatever you want. Wherever you want. But not here, okay? Why do you care so much? You're 15, you shouldn't even be in here. So what? Haven't told anyone, have I? Hey! Go. Otherwise you're off the team. What? And in that moment, she comes out of the bathroom and she's seen by her partner and there's, you know, wrong conclusions are leapt to. Now, like Pride, which I love, and incidentally, of course, is connected to Matilda by the same director. This is one of those films that takes you right back to a grim period in relatively modern recent history, certainly in terms of the, the, the legislative. I mean, remember, the 1980s was the time when James Anderton, who was the chief police constable of Manchester, was declaring quite openly that um, uh, anyone afflicted by AIDS was swirling in a cesspit of their own making. I mean, this was this was a time of repression, the likes of which one would shudder to, to think about. And yet, it gets the textures of that period just right in a way which is vivacious and you know, engrossing. So the the tunes are right, the clothes are right, the 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 physical stances are right, and like that. I was also thinking of it's a sin in relation to this as well. It reminds you that light and dark coexisted absolutely side by side. Um, the 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 performances are really really terrific. I mean, like really genuinely terrific across the board. You think this is an ensemble that are all embodying their roles. So at no point do I think, oh, any, I don't believe in that character, I don't believe in that character. What happens is I look at the screen and I think all those characters are the people that they're embodying. And then the course of the narrative, which is to do with kind of, self, I mean, this connects to women talking because it's to do with self-actualization, self-realization and becoming becoming the person that you, that you always know, knew you are, but you were kind of backing away from. And it's, you know, it's a coming-of-age story, but it's also a political story, but it's actually primarily a very personal sort of love story. You know, it's uh, the couple are together and then something breaks them apart and you, you can't see a way out of it. It's it's tender and yet it's kind of, you know, got rough edges, which I, I really like. And it's kind of thrilling. I mean, you look at this and you think, this is the kind of exciting edgy independent movie that we should be celebrating right now and it's it's i think it's great i, re I really hope it finds an audience in cinemas because it really deserves to it's called blue jean and it's terrific now that is the end of take one obviously if you're a subscriber take two has already arrived uh, in your <laughs> feed. Is... Uh, production management general all-round stuff uh, lily hamley cameras teddy riley videos ryan amira studio engineer josh gibbs uh, guest researcher Sophie Ivan, Flynn Rodham was the assistant producer and guest booker. Uh, Johnny Socials was on the socials. Hannah Barbera was the producer, interestingly. Uh, Simon Paul was the redactor. <laughs> Mark, what is your movie of the week? It's a double bill. Okay. Women Talking and Blue Jean. So Blue Jean, is, Blue Jean is up there with Women Talking. It's really good. Thank you for listening. Our extra takes with bonus review, bunch of recommendations and even more stuff about the movies and cinema adjacent television has already arrived in your um, inbox. Inbox. In your pigeonhole. Nobody has an inbox anymore. In your pigeonhole. Uh, also, Ben Baby Smith and Sasha with you on Tuesday for Shrink the Box. Anyway, they're talking about Beth Harmon from The Queen's Gambit, which you can hear more of 
in our yeah, extra takes. You can. I mean, this is so interconnected. It's Along with, and there's also an extra review of Titanic 25th anniversary. So uh, looking forward to that already. Correspondence at CobainAmeo.com. We'll talk to you next week.